brought to you by Charity Mobile, the phone company that shares your values. More information is available at CharityMobile.com. Today I have for you something a little bit different for this Saturday reflection. It comes from Cardinal Mueller, who's usually talking about the crisis in the church. And he is here. It's an address he gave on Cardinal John Henry Newman, who rejected the ecumenical dialogue that we see going on so often in the church in our time today. It's an important lesson, I think, because Newman is often cited by the modernists for their reasoning behind all the work that they do. And yet, here we have Cardinal Mueller telling us exactly why that's erroneous. And he really goes into the, a lot of the errors we see today. So without further ado, let's get into this. On February 21st, 1801, John Henry Newman was born in the city of London. He is rightly considered one of the most important Christian thinkers of modern times. His life spans almost the entire 19th century. The Anglican clergyman and famous leader of the Oxford movement, who was received into full communion with the Catholic Church in 1845, died on August 11, 1890, as a cardinal in the Oratory of Birmingham, his most important place of activity since 1849. His historical, theological, and spiritual works are all equally remarkable. Most of the sermons have appeared in German editions, including many with profound interpretations of the central mysteries of Christianity. He achieved fame with his draft of a doctrine of assent, i.e. an answer to the question of how, in spite of all the finiteness of human knowledge, one can nevertheless arrive at the certainty of the assent of faith to the historically given revelation of God. His work on the development of the doctrine of faith can be almost called ingenious. In it, he had developed the principles of the historical continuity and identity of revelation under the conditions of finite human knowledge in the faith subject church which is founded by Christ and maintained in the truth by the Holy Spirit, and introduced ever more deeply into it. For the present controversies about the nature and aim of university, education, and science, and the legitimacy of revelation-bound theology in public teaching institutions, his lectures on the nature of the university, which he had delivered in 1851 on the occasion of the foundation of the Catholic University of Dublin, are likely to be of the highest topicality. Crucial for his intellectual biography is his Apologia Pro Vita Sua, in which he presents the history of his religious convictions and defends himself against the accusation that the motives of his conversation were insincere. With this literary masterpiece, also written in brilliant English, which can be placed on a level with the Confessions of St. Augustine and the Pensées of Blaise Pascal, he also restored the honor of the Catholic clergy in Protestant England, which had been marked by anti-Catholic polemics since the Reformation. At the time, strengthened by the Enlightenment polemics from 18th century France, people were still firmly convinced that Catholic priests and religious were nothing but evil hypocrites and unscrupulous agents of the Antichrist in the Roman papal chair, who would use any means to satisfy their hunger for power. They lived and nurtured the prejudices of the anti-scientific and anti-progress Catholic Church, and saw in Roman universalism the main enemy of the nation-state idea with its imperialist and colonialist goals. In this context, the church could only be tolerated as the English state church, and the Anglican bishops willingly allowed themselves to be taken into the service of a nationalistically narrowed Christianity. The Multiplicity of Christian Communities and the Visible Unity of the Catholic Church According to his own testimony, Newman, the renowned scholar 
and celebrated university preacher in Oxford could no longer close his mind to the insight that the Catholic Church of the Roman Pope, so despised in England and not the Anglican State Church, which had only existed since the 16th century, was in real continuity with the Church of the Apostles. After the biblical and historical untenability of the Protestant original dogma of the Pope as Antichrist had dawned on him, with his excellent knowledge of the Bible and the Church Fathers, it could not escape him that the Catholic Church is in full continuity of doctrine and Church constitution with the Church of the Apostolic Beginning, and that the Protestant accusations of a corruption of the Apostolic faith or an enrichment with unbiblical doctrine elements fall back on the latter itself. In his Apologia, chapter 4, he writes, quote, If I am not mistaken, my chief reason for contemplating a conversion is the deep, unalterable conviction that our church is in schism and that my salvation depends on union with the Roman church. It is the same understanding of the church that was expressed in the Second Vatican Council as a confession of faith. The statement Dominus Iesus of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith of August 6, 2000, mostly misinterpreted because, by many intentionally not read, says the same thing. Newman had rejected with good reasons the theory according to which the Anglican Church walks a middle path between Catholicism and Protestantism, and that one can pragmatically accept the division of Christianity, with the idea that there are several branches on the one tree of the Church. However, the majority of the existing communities cannot be considered as partial realizations of the one Church of Christ because the Church of Christ is indivisible, and this indivisibility, expressed by the visible form of its unity in faith, sacramental life, and apostolic constitution, belongs unavoidably to its essence. Accordingly, the goal of the ecumenical movement is not a man-made fusion of ecclesial subunions, but the restoration of the full communion in faith and of the bishops as successors of the apostles, as it has been historically realized since the beginning and continuously in the church, which is led by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him, quoting Dominus Iesus. Why did Newman oppose ecumenism based on relativism and skepticism? Why was he not satisfied with the formula, we all believe in the same God, and therefore church doctrine does not matter? We don't know anything for sure. Religion is a matter of feeling, and therefore the way of the church is dedicated by the majority of those who have the same feelings. For ecumenical unity, a mere feeling of community and sentimental relationship with quote-unquote Jesus is enough to then make unity according to majority taste. If one feels one, can one also celebrate a Eucharistic communion meal together, even if the authoritative teachings of the church or of Christian communities separated from it teach the opposite and claim the recognition of these teachings as relevant to salvation? Newman believes in the reality of God and the fact of his historical self-revelation in Jesus Christ and his present presence in the church, which is guided by the Spirit of God and its essential structural elements and the apostolic authority of its pastors. Those who take the Incarnation seriously must also take the Church seriously as the work of God and beware of any manipulation by ideologically obdurate pressure groups. The visible Church is a concretization of the incarnate presence of the Word of God in Jesus Christ. Because the history of Israel's salvation exists, because the Incarnation took place, because Christ really gave his life on the cross for the salvation of the world, and because he really rose from the dead, there is also the concrete obligation to the obedience of faith to revelation, which is made present in the confession of faith, in the promise of salvation in the sacraments, and in the ecclesiastical authority vis-a-vis -vis the successors of the apostles and the episcopate. It is in the coordinate network of this confession that Newman wants to be understood. 
The widespread view that one Christian denomination is like another and that true Christianity takes place solely in the interiority of the heart beyond creed, dogma, sacrament, and ecclesiastical teaching authority may seem plausible to a large number of Christians today, but it is untenable in light of what Scripture says about Revelation and the Church. Because a visible sacramental church and the invisible community of believers belong indissolubly together, Newman had to ask which among the empirical Christian communities now given can rightly lay claim to the identity of the creed and historical continuity. He did not understand his conversion as a change from one Christian denomination to another, nor had he decided to take this step because Catholic piety might have appealed to him more emotionally, or because he would have been more comfortable with the Roman Catholic culture. On the contrary, the outward appearance of the Catholic Church would have had to repel him rather even. He took the step because he recognized in faith and conscience the full identity of the Church of Christ with the visible Catholic Church. This was not an affront to the Anglican Church. His conversion is not a cause of mourning for some and a sense of triumph for others. Newman belongs to all Christianity. He is one of the most impressive witnesses to the visible unity of the Church, which Jesus himself wanted and which therefore forms an immovable standard of Christian identity. Newman lived in the 19th century, which formulated the essential questions that also determined the 20th century and will have an impact far into the 21st century. It is about the fundamental challenge formulated by the popular philosophy of the Enlightenment. It is about the right of Christianity to exist and the responsibility of historical revelation as truth and fact before human reason. In the critique of religion by Feuerbach, Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud, the apparent overcoming of faith and revelation by modern science and the massive hostility to the church of the totalitarian regimes of the two villainous figures of the 1930s and 40s, the one question is always whether God exists and whether his word may be the measure of our faith and conscience. In his famous speech at his elevation as cardinal in 1879, Newman highlights the two possible basic attitudes towards revelation. One he calls the liberal skeptical attitude of agnosticism and atheism. The other he calls the dogmatic attitude, i.e. the fundamental willingness to obey the word of God in faith, made present in the human word of confession by, of the church. Quote, Liberalism in religion is the doctrine that there is no positive truth in religion, but that one confession is as good as another, and this is the doctrine which is gaining influence and power day by day. It is incompatible with any religion, as true. It teaches that everything must be tolerated because everything is, after all, a matter of personal opinion. Revealed religion is not a truth, but a matter of feeling and taste. It is not an objective fact. It belongs to the realm of the miraculous. Moreover, everyone has the right to attribute to it the statements that he just likes in it, end quote. Dogmatic thinking is opposed to this. It recognizes the fact of God's word of revelation, which has addressed man in Jesus Christ. In contrast to a merely emotional perception of an impersonal presence of the divine, the word of God made flesh is reasonable and clearly expressible. This is evidenced by the creed of the church. Moreover, in the sacramental acts of the church, which Christ has entrusted to her, the word made flesh is present. In this comparison of the two possible basic attitudes of modern man toward the self-revelation of God in Jesus Christ, it is, of course, not the terms liberal and dogmatic that are important, but the thing that is to be designated by them. Newman did not aim at political liberalism. He certainly recognized the humane sentiments of many of its representatives. There was nothing left to do after the end of the European Wars of Confession and the devastation brought upon the world by the French Revolution and Napoleon's Wars of Expansion but to reorganize society on the principles of religious freedom, tolerance, and equality of all before the law. 
If religion was therefore entrusted to the individual's conscience of truth, this did not mean that it had become a private matter or something arbitrary. On the contrary, the challenge to the individual to seek the truth and to face up to its obligatory power had increased enormously compared to the times when European rulers could still determine the religion of their subjects. Of course, modern religious freedom does not include the right of the individual against the state's claims to power and society's pressure to conform. Decisive for the full realization of this fundamental right is also the community dimension of the question of truth. Each religious community must be allowed to determine for itself what are and what are not the binding, i.e. dogmatic elements of its constitution, and the rationally demonstrable conditions of its validity. At this point, the modern conflict between faith and unbelief occurs. Liberalism claims the totality and exclusivity of its validity, in opposition to its own principles. The generosity and alleged breadth towards all faiths is often only a militant indifference to the faith claim of the Word of God. Liberalism, as criticized by Newman, is another form of rationalism. Quote, Liberalism, therefore, is the abuse of subjecting to human judgment those revealed doctrines, which by their nature are above it and independent of it and of claiming to determine the internal reasons, the truth and validity of doctrines which simply rely for their acceptance on the external authority of the divine word. End quote. Liberalism asserts the sole validity of metaphysical skepticism. Although metaphysically valid and doubtless propositions are not possible under the presuppositions of liberalism, it opposes the freedom of religious communities to determine the truth content and reality horizon of their confession, according to their own metaphysical and epistemological principles. In opposition to this kind of liberalism, the rational justification of the act of faith and of the contents of faith has become Newman's life theme. Here, too, Newman is of captivating relevance. The Declaration Dominus Iesus rejected the so-called pluralistic theory of religion as incompatible with the foundations and contents of the Catholic faith, which amounts to a relativization of Christ in the Church. This theory of the equal treat rank and equal nature of several mediations and mediators is based on the epistemological relativism and skepticism. It is assumed that every human being, with the help of his ancestral religion and culture, can overcome his egocentricity in order to engage with his fellow human being and open himself to the reality that is always greater than anything we can think and do in our finitude. This, he said, is the salvation of the communi that communicates itself to every religiously-minded person. Whether he imagines God as a personal God or as an impersonal numinous before the ever-eluding horizon of reality, or whether he expects a personal resurrection after death, or the bodily return in animal bodies, or as oneness with the one and all of being, or nothingness outside of any personal consciousness. For Newman, it was clear that the Christian confession of general salvation, will of the one God, and of the uniqueness of Christ Jesus' meditation of salvation, is not a devaluation of pre-Christian religions by means of absolutization of a single tradition of the Christian Occident. Whoever exposes the basic dogma of the relativists and metaphysical skeptics and agnostics, according to which a historical self-revelation of God is not possible, as unproven and unprovable, will also confess that God is already at work in the search for truth and the desire for salvation of people in all religions, so that in Jesus Christ all men may be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For Newman, therefore, Christianity is the religion of the future, because God, who has once for all taken up residence in our world in his word made flesh, is also the future of humanity. 
Revelation begins where natural religion fails. Natural religion is a mere unfinished initial state and needs a supplement, but it can have only one complement, and that very complement is Christianity. Natural religion is based on the sense of sin. It recognizes the affliction, but it can only look for the remedy. It cannot find it. This remedy for both guilt and moral incapacity is found in the central doctrine of Revelation, the mediatorship of Christ. This is why Christianity is the fulfillment of time and of the promise made by made to Abraham and of the Messianic Revelation. This explains why the Roman power and the multitude of religions it embraced could not withstand it. This is the secret of its continued energy and its never-flagging martyrdom. This explains why it is still today so mysteriously powerful, in spite of the new and terrible enemies that surround its path. It carries with it that gift which is able to close and heal a deep wound of human nature, a gift which works more for its success than a whole encyclopedia of scientific knowledge and a whole library of controversy, and therefore it must continue as long as human nature continues. It is a living truth that can never grow old. Some speak of it as if it were an object of history, with only direct relations to modern times. I cannot admit that it is a merely historical religion. Certainly it has its foundations in past and glorious memories, but its power lies in the present. It is not a dull matter of antiquity. We do not look at it in conclusions drawn from dumb documents and dead events, but with faith consummated in ever-living objects and through the appropriation and use of ever-recurring gifts. What connects us to Christianity is the invisible, not the obsolete. To this day, its rites and customs invoke the active intervention of that omnipotence with which religion began long ago. First and foremost is the Holy Mass, in which he who once died for us on the cross by his literal presence in it brings back and perpetuates the same sacrifice that cannot be repeated. Immediately after this comes the real entrance of himself, with soul and body and divinity, into the soul and body of every pious person who comes to him for this gift, a privilege much more intimate than if we lived with him during his long past sojourn on earth. And then, moreover, his personal dwelling in our churches, elevating earthly ministry to a foretaste of heaven. This is the task of Christianity, and I repeat, the very fact that it anticipates our needs is in itself proof that it is their real fulfillment. The promised Redeemer, the expectation of the nations, has not half done his work. He has created a visible hierarchy and a succession of sacraments so that they may be the channels of his graces. In all these ways he brings himself close to us. Just as human nature itself is still as alive and active as it has always been, so too he is alive to our imagination, through his visible symbols, as if he were on earth, with a practical efficacy that even unbelievers cannot deny. Thus it is the corrective of this nature and its power day by day, and this power to perpetuate his image is a strong proof of how well he fulfills to this day that sovereign mission which was assigned to him in prophecy from the first beginning of the world's history. Another parallel to the present is provided by the episodes of the Achille trial, which overshadowed the year 1851. A Dominican friar named Achille, who had apostatized from his religious vows and from the faith, had spread the misdeeds and crimes of the church to the amusement of his church-critical and smugly arrogant audience, leaving out no stereotype or prejudice. When Newman criticized this populist treatment of historical events, he was covered with a libel judgment. Although arch all charges proved to be unjustified, the judge sentenced him to a ruinous fine, deprived him of the right to speak, and insulted him as quite a derelict subject. Hostility and outbursts of hatred exist today, even within the church. In some countries like Holland, Switzerland, Austria, and Germany, there are factions that believe the bishops and the pope to be the worst. Often theologians and priests who have erred in the faith or failed in celibacy or the evangelical councils are the spokesmen and agitators of movements that pretend to reform the church but consciously or unconsciously do nothing but divide and destroy. 
Newman is a model of steadfastness in the face of hostility coming from outside, but he is also a model of spiritual firmness in the face of suspicions and mistrust that come from within his own ranks. Bullying is what they call it today. For years, a cloud of suspicion hovered over Newman from high figures in the church. Newman did not withdraw an offense because he knew. The Church of Christ is more than the group dynamics and their sway of sympathies and antipathies on the surface of the church. Church reaches into the mystery of Christ. Church as sacrament means being taken into the sonship of Christ, who as head makes the church his body, brings individual believers together as a community, and also gives this community to all charisms and offices so that it can, be, it can fulfill its mission for the salvation of the world. In this way, the human all-too-human cannot destroy the church and tempt us to resignation. Pope Leo XIII, of all the external and internal difficulties and hostilities, resistances and irritations, elevated Cardinal Newman to Cardinal in 1879. He honored him for his ecclesiasticism deeply rooted in faith and willingness to serve the church with all the admirable gifts of his mind, humanity, and education of the heart. He declared, I was determined to honor the church by honoring Newman. Newman is undoubtedly a formidable Christian thinker who, with his works and with his lifestyle, in the midst of, his, of the controversies that revolve around the legitimacy of Christianity in modern times, points sovereignly and convincingly to the future of man, which is none other than God and Jesus Christ and his church. Newman, who not only was an outstanding theologian and gifted poet, but also a great prayerful man, brought the situation of the church, as he vividly perceived and suffered through it, before God in a prayer. It does not need much explanation to establish the topicality of these words as well. O God, the time is full of distress. The cause of Christ lies as in the death throes. And nevertheless, never Christ strode more powerfully through the earth time. Never was his coming more evident. Never his nearness more perceptible. Never his service more delicious than now. Therefore, in these moments of the eternal, between storm and tempest, let us pray to you in the time of the earth. O God, you can illuminate the darkness. You alone can. And that was the address of Cardinal Newman on, or of Cardinal Mueller, rather, on Cardinal Newman, and really about modern errors, often about the sort of surrender of the faith that we see going on in ecumenical dialogue most of the time now. All too often we see the prelates of Germany, which I believe this was aimed squarely at, by extension, Francis and others saying that the we must surrender the truths of the faith for dialogue. But dialogue to what end? As Cardinal Mueller here expresses, true ecumenical dialogue has one goal and one goal in mind only. The reunif total reunification of Christianity under the Roman pontiff and his successors, in, or his servants and the apostles, meaning the bishops. And that's not what we see today. All too often we see functionally the opposite. Multiple truth claims being embraced by papal authorities, which is just astonishing to watch, if you understand the historical claims of the truth. Those are my thoughts on this. What do you think about this address? Let me know in the comments, please. Like and subscribe if you haven't. It really does help. And share this on social media if you can. That helps as well. As always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.